Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., we are still in quarantine. We are six feet away from each other. Yes, we are. Chad Snavely, our producer, is six feet away. Yep. We're doing okay in Nashville. We don't have a we don't have the ton of cases that they have in some mm-hmm. of the hot spots. So yep. we've decided to come together six feet away, mm-hmm. and uh, we're and not touching doorknobs. No, apart wearing hazmat suits. Well, I haven't, but <laughs> <laughs> I've been wearing a lot of pajamas while working at home. But, but we're yeah, I've seen your Instagram stuff. <laughs> you have some explaining to do. I don't know what this is. There's like an opera going on at your house. And I did that on Saturday. Yeah, I had a little bit of time. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of something else too. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of hooch. No, we pulled out the uh, is, the coffee can and, and, and pulled sober. the whiskey out of the bottom. That is me, pure sober. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to quote somebody. You tell me who it is. Okay, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Oh wow, um, Patton. Ooh, very close, very close. I'll give you another one. A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Um, Churchill. Churchill is right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you were very close with Patton. That's what gave it away to me. <laughs> oh, that I, I got you closer? Yeah. yeah, I was like, okay, what like, era? Who's close what to yeah, yeah, yeah. And who's a big quotable? Yep. Yeah. Well, Stephen Mansfield is the guest today, and he actually wrote a book about Churchill and how he led through crisis. And so oh, I know nice. we've got a lot of leaders who are listening to this podcast who are having to lead through crisis. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. But who's shining for you as you watch leadership happen I mean, people are coming. First of all, where in the heck is Joe Biden? They're not giving him any airtime. I know he's no. trying. Yeah. No, he's kind of completely disappeared right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, but he hasn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, but I'm I mean, sure, in the media. I'm sure mm-hmm. he's he's standing in his shower yeah. singing about how he should be president. <laughs> Nobody's covering it. Nobody's covering anything. Bernie else. Sanders. But here's the thing. Yeah. If you've got something provocative, interesting, and helpful to say, they'll cover you. Yeah. So I'm kind of going, where's Biden? Where's Sanders? Right? Um, not seeing a whole lot of it. Cuomo. Yeah, he's he's. It in helps the front that your brother is the CNN anchor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you think yeah. there was some insider trading and dealing it, there? It was the hot spot, you know. So it yeah. really is the epicenter, and so he's he's out there every day, you know, and trying to lead well in this season. You know, I, it, this is so unprecedented that you know there's all these. There, I think there's a lot of things that you can learn from history of leading through crisis. Um, which I'm, that's why I'm excited about this interview, but also at the same time, like this, all this stuff is really unprecedented. It is unprecedented, but I think there, there, there are still leadership principles that apply. hundred percent. And, you know, I blame a lot of kind of what's going on, uh, and the, the way the, our culture is dealing with this, uh, crisis on the media. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, I, I watched a, you know, I watched an article, or I watched uh, Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta the other day, mm-hmm. and they were interviewing somebody who was in a facility in, in Nebraska. He'd been on a cruise ship. He's probably 60-something years old. He has coronavirus, and um, he's okay. I mean, he, you know, he's got a cough, and he's got a fever, and he's on the upswing. He's recovering from it. Yep. And he was kind of making jokes about how, you know, they had to swab his ears and tickle the... And you, you sat there and watched Anderson Cooper and Sanjay. They could not wait to get that guy off the air. <laughs> they couldn't yeah. wait. That is yeah. not going to make news. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of, um, 
I'm not belittling yeah, yeah, the no, coronavirus. No, no. Please understand. Taking I'm it not. very seriously. It's just not helpful. Yeah. When you, you know, I remember watching a, uh, I, I'm a hurricane fanatic because I grew up in Houston and went through Hurricane Alicia when I was a kid. So I became obsessed with these mm-hmm. giant storms. And uh, when I lived in Portland, we don't have giant storms. So, but there was a hurricane coming through Texas, and I stayed up to watch the Weather Channel to watch it come in and all that kind of stuff. And there was a News Channel uh, host or whatever in the parking lot of a mall in Houston mm-hmm. talking about. You know, first of all, the electricity is on in the background. There is definitely some wind, and they're just saying this is atrocious. You know, everybody see cover blah blah. And a streaker started running through the parking lot behind them completely <laughs> naked. <laughs> and I said, kind of ruins your point, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's not what we're doing here. That's not how we're approaching this. <laughs> but No, no, but, uh, but no, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. the news, you do, you, if you cry wolf too many times, people get sick of it. Yep. It's just a ton of misinformation and confusion. And I think that's happening because there's a lack of leadership. Yeah. I fault the Trump administration for this. I fault Governor Cuomo for this. I fault uh, Republicans wanting to fight with Democrats and news wanting to make money off advertising. Yep. And I don't know, it's bothering me. You might disagree. I tend to, I mean, one, I think that sometimes you. what's happened is that people have become complacent, so you almost have to elevate it. I think this is the So you say there's the a benefit side. to doing the shock, the sort of shock. Yeah, training. to basically say, look, people stay indoors and they have to show you all of this. Now, I did see a study where they were talking about how many times, like even going back, SARS was mentioned in the media during right. that period of time compared to how much... COVID has been mentioned in the media in this time, and the numbers are astronomically different. Yeah. So I think- Well, SARS also wasn't spreading like- No, no, no. You know, it but it as- just, they, they were just showing like where the hype was. So in some ways, I see it I see it as a service where like, no, we have to take this seriously. And in order to take it seriously, we have to elevate and kind of create a false narrative to some degree in order to get people to take it seriously. The danger in that is that- You lose trust. You lose trust. Yeah, 100%. and I would disagree. I don't think you have to create a false narrative. I think you can actually create a balanced narrative and and get the job done. You just have to do it well and do it right. And if you just follow the incentives, nobody is really incentivized to do the right thing here. Yeah. Right? Nobody's really incentivized to do the right thing. So, I don't know. We are quarantined. We have mm-hmm. told our staff, uh, especially anybody with any sort of immune issues, anybody showing symptoms, don't get together. We are not taking this lightly. Please don't think I'm saying tickles. What yeah. we're really talking about is leadership, telling the truth, authentically yeah. getting play, people to a place where they need to be. And I just don't see it happening. Or if it is happening, it isn't being covered. Yeah. Right? The camera is not on that person it's who's not a good making story. that happen. Um, but it was happening in World War II. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way to bring it back. Way to bring it back. And it was happening with Winston Churchill, and there are leadership lessons to be learned here. And, you know, what are they? And uh, how, how can we lead through a crisis? This is uh, the biggest crisis, probably from an economic perspective, even more than a health perspective, that our generation will experience, mm-hmm. hopefully. Hopefully this is yep. it. Hopefully there's nothing bigger than this. Yeah. Uh, and we are going to have to ha- be good leaders to help people climb out of this. And I think there's some stuff to learn here from Churchill. Stephen Mansell is one of my favorite people on the planet. He is just, he's a renaissance man of a writer. Uh, Stephen, uh, he wrote the book, The Faith of George W. Bush, The Faith of Barack Obama. He wrote mm-hmm. a book on Donald Trump. So he's big, he's big in un- trying to understand leadership and how it works. He wrote a book on Winston Churchill that we're going to talk about here in a second. He's also uh, helping to write the Kurdish Constitution. 
Of course he is. Of course he is. <laughs> and he wrote a book uh, on manly manhood. He's just, he's all over the place. Um, but he tends to have one line of thought. What's the best way to lead people? Where do you get the most leverage? And words, of course, because he's a words guy, words are very important, the words that we use. So we'll get to that. You can stop listening to my rant and JJ's discomfort with my rant uh, <laughs> here at the beginning of the podcast, and we'll get right through to... By the way, I, I don't like coronavirus. I didn't start it. Mm-hmm. I'm not promoting it, and I'm against it. <laughs> so be very, very clear. Yes. All right. Now let's see what Winston Churchill has to say. That's my leadership on the issue. <laughs> how, would, how would Winston Churchill lead us on this? Here's my conversation with Stephen Mansfield. Stephen, we're talking at an interesting time. We sure are. <laughs> uh, we have uh, the world is kind of half shut down uh, to fully shut down, depending on where you live. And uh, I wanted to talk to you because most of the people we got ninety thousand listeners. Can you believe it? Now it's crazy. Congratulations! Yeah, it's nuts. And most of them are are leaders. They're leading something. They're leading a group of people. And I'm watching a lot of different leadership styles uh, happen right now. You wrote a book called The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, a hero in the time of crisis, and you identified, just studying, kind of reverse engineering, who he was and how he led during that time, and I thought it would be a great time to just talk that we could all learn from somebody like Winston Churchill on how to lead at a time like this. First of all, why Churchill? Why did you choose him to write a book about? What was your interest? We're all interested in Churchill, of course, but what drew you to him personally? Well, two things. First of all, I just found initially when I first fell in love with Churchill, I found uh, a lot of commonality uh, between his style, and by that I don't mean leadership, and mine, just everything. Uh, difficult family growing up, hmm. uh, love of history, a self-educator, it, it's even, even into staying up late at night, all of those things. That's what drew me. But the second thing is um, that he, though people don't often talk about it, he had to confront a lot of crisis. We know that we know that he handled World War II, but if you drop back in his life, I mean the loss of empire, World War One, World War II, economic crisis in the 30s, um, the worst economic depression almost any nation had had up to that time after World War II, the loss of India. I could go on and on and on. So most of the leadership for which we remember him and uh, after which we model uh, we model ourselves after him for this reason uh, is was fashioned in crisis leadership. So I decided to drill. Down down and see what were the principles, what were the pillars, what were the guidelines he used in confronting the crises of his leadership life. Tell me this about Churchill. This is this is a, a, an idea that I got stuck in my head some time ago. He was so good at confronting crisis and confronting challenge and having an enemy. He was so good at that, that Britain really said in times when there wasn't a crisis, we don't need you very much take a back seat, and then when they had an enemy to fight, they brought in Churchill. Is that true, or is that just something that I made up in my mind? No, that's exactly true. In fact, one of the reasons he was out of favor so much in the 1930s uh, was that he was predicting a crisis. In other words, he not only was good at leading through crisis, he also knew when they were looming. Would it, would it, would it be safe to say that he kind of wanted one, that, that that's when he comes alive, that's his skill set, so he kind of needed a crisis or wanted a crisis? Absolutely. You you know the old saw, to every hammer, uh, to a hammer, every crisis, is every, every challenge is a nail. Yeah. And, <laughs> and in a sense... Uh, Churchill, yeah, his energies, his gifts rose and elevated when he, when he was facing a crisis. You know, it's funny. We, Betsy and I were on vacation recently, and uh, 
I just finished a book and, and was trying to get some rest and really had, just felt redlined. And then we got home and the vacation kind of didn't work, still felt redlined. And then this coronavirus crisis hit, right? And it just came alive. And Betsy said, you didn't need a vacation. You needed a crisis. And there's, there's part of us that I think every human being needs a challenge to kind of come alive. And we certainly see that. He, he narrows his focus uh, the adrenaline gets going. He becomes probably even more strategic, better at making decisions, uh, is able to play tennis uh, and chess kind of at the same time in, in terms of the speed of his decision-making ability. And you really sort of reverse engineered about nine things that he was doing that we can all learn from. And I'd love to go through them if you don't mind. The first is he frames the crisis. He frames it which to me is critical. It's critical. It's actually critical, not just with a crisis. And get anything done. You in getting anything done, you have to control the frame. So, t- talk about how how he did that and what it means to frame a crisis. Well, this is one of the most important things you can do in approaching a crisis, and Churchill was a master of it. Uh, you have to give an interpretive grid. You have to embed the crisis in a broader range of understanding, so people can understand it. And so they get their minds around it, and then they can act. If, if you don't do that, they're mesmerized. They're overwhelmed. That's most of what's happened this first week with coronavirus. People are just overwhelmed. So in, during World War II, Churchill could have chosen economic factors with which to explain the war. He could have exp- explained it as the final battle of World War I. There are a lot of grids by which to understand it. Churchill chose a more spiritual understanding. He called Nazism the blackest paganism. He summoned the Christian nations. Uh, he, he, he talked about the evils of Hitler uh, and how this was hedonism, et cetera. In other words, he used a spiritual grid of interpretation. And he knew what he was doing. It wasn't that it, this wasn't cynical. He genuinely believed it. But he also knew that the cabbie, the guy sitting in the pub, um, every, every housewife in all of Britain would understand the war in that according to that grid. So he framed it in a way that they could understand the conflict and they would act. And of course, that summoned great sacrifice from the British people. Let me ask you this. You wrote a book about George W. Bush, and George W. Bush tried something similar when he used the phrase axis of evil, and it didn't work. It backfired. and I think it backfired mostly in popular culture, and, I, I, and when I reverse engineer that, I say, well, it's because they weren't all sort of attacking us coming up on our shores. They, you know, a lot of people didn't even, couldn't even find these countries on a map. Is it safe to say that George W. Bush, in trying to frame something, why why didn't it work for him when it worked for Churchill? Obviously, very different. You know, there was a pointed enemy in Adolf Hitler. Everybody knew who he was, so that makes it easier to understand. Uh, And then there's four different countries that aren't connected or doing business with each other that aren't necessarily attacking the same enemies. It just felt like there wasn't a black and white narrative that people could uh, latch on to when George W. Bush took the same route. So I would imagine framing the crisis, it's also contextual. The, the context has to be true and right. Not, not, that the, not that they weren't evil. I'm not saying that George W. Bush wasn't up against evil. He was. But there was just something that didn't work. He got beyond the understanding of the average person. Right. You there see, you go. Chir- Churchill during World War II used spiritual language uh, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. He would literally speak in those terms. It was it was a time when England was largely Christian. Everybody understood it. Uh, George W. Bush, you know, the average American 
uh, not to be insulting, doesn't really know much about North Korea until recently. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't have named who was in charge. I'll tell you what's a great example of this, though, in a positive sense, uh, that we now know that Ronald Reagan once scripted a moment um, when there was a hot mic and he was acting like he didn't know it. And he, and, and he called he called Russia the evil empire. Do you remember this? Are you old enough to no, remember no, that? No, I remember it, yeah. He called Russia the evil empire, and he said, I'm about to order the bombing of the evil, you know, that kind of thing. He, right. he was playing, but he also knew what he was doing. He knew the mic was hot. Well, that stuck. And that, the historians now say, that helped to bring about the end of the Cold War because it was reported in the Soviet Union, and the people began to turn to each other and say, are we the evil empire? And it caused popular movements to arise. So that was a situation in which the framing worked. What George W. Bush did was get too far beyond the understanding of the man on the street. And also, you're in, you just can't have four equal villains attacking you know, the good guys in a story. It just doesn't work. You can have minions under that villain, but it, it, the narrative doesn't work. I, I think any screenwriter could have sat with George W. Bush and said, eh, let's not do that. Let's do this. <laughs> exactly. Little- we, have, we, have, we have one guy. He's the Antichrist. He's the, he's the devil. He's the devil. He oversees an evil kingdom, and we are the Christian nations opposing him. And with that interpretive grid, Churchill awakened the British people. Well, the second thing we need to do after we frame the crisis, and by the way, there's so many ways to frame the coronavirus crisis, and if I were in a position of, of leadership uh, at a government level, I would be calling this you know, a crisis and an opportunity to come together and heal some of our wounds and iterate and create what we need to create to come out of this and be stronger when we're through it. We just need to band together. Those are the kind of language I would use rather than the sort of confusing rhetoric that I think is coming out of both Congress and the executive branch, uh, that doesn't seem to be a clear lead uh, on, on this particular crisis, or it hasn't been framed in such a way that we all know our role and understand what we're supposed to do and feel a sense of nobility in fighting it. A lot of our corporate leaders, though, I think are doing a fantastic job. It's really interesting to see the diversity of leadership rise up on this. The second thing that we need to do after we frame the crisis, though, according to your uh, reverse engineering of Churchill's success is invoke a sense of destiny. Uh, What do you mean by invoking a sense of destiny? Well, when Churchill took high office right before World War II, he said, I felt like I was walking with destiny, that all my prior experience was preparation for this trial and for this hour. Uh, And then he spoke to the British people in the same terms. Look, this this didn't happen by accident. This has been ordained for us. We are called to this. He used that kind of language. Uh, And so this can be our finest hour. And that's a lot of what motivates people. It's it's not just chosen because it motivates. It's chosen because Christian, you know, Churchill operated within a Christian orientation. But the bottom line is that people need to feel like they are destined, that they are made for this, that they can, uh, you know, that that this was something they are prepared for. Uh, it's it's extremely important. People rise to the challenge they believe is ordained for them. And so, to to merge what you were saying in the last point with this point, if I was trying to frame this. Uh, this crisis, this coronavirus for our generation, I would I would say things like, this is our generation's great challenge. This is our opportunity to match the greatest generation. You know, I, in other words, I, I'd, I'd frame it in sort of a generational calling. We can be as great as our grandparents if we do this right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Why, why, why do we call them the greatest generation? Because they had World War II visited on them. Okay, we've had lower-level skirmishes, Korea, Vietnam, what have you. Uh, we've had scandals. But this this may be our finest hour. And if gosh, you could, what you know, a missed opportunity. I mean, that's, oh, a, that's a wonderful frame, Stephen. It really is. It's a wonderful frame. Well, it's, it's not just motivational language. It's not just as though, you know, I, I choose that. It's because people... 
people, people know in their souls that this is right and they rise to it. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Stephen Mansfield in just a moment. Many of you have asked questions about how you become a StoryBrand Certified Marketing Guide. StoryBrand Certified Marketing Guide are existing marketing professionals who want to get certified in our process and want us to vouch for them. That process is normally a four-day training in Nashville, Tennessee, followed by a year's process in which we teach you everything we know about marketing. That normally involves you getting on a plane, you booking a hotel room, you taking time away from friends and family. Because of the coronavirus, we're actually doing the next certification online. It's a three-day certification. It's going to take place May 18th, 19th, and 20th. If you would like to save a lot of money and a lot of time and become one of our certified guides, just go to storybrand.com slash guide. That's storybrand.com slash guide. You'll apply and we'll get right back to you to conduct a short, fun interview to see if our program is right for you. I'm going to make a bold ask. I know you've been thinking about this for a long time. It's time. This is your best opportunity. Go to storybrand.com slash guide and apply today. The third thing that you noticed that Churchill was doing, he defined victory. And and there was a clear climactic or obligatory scene, to use screenwriting terms, that he could head people toward. And I've often said, I say it every time I, I speak about messaging, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's tagline was, I'm with her. Uh, Donald Trump's tagline was, make America great again. One was something that we could head toward that you could almost kind of picture. The other was not a climactic scene at all. And so people tend to head toward a vision of victory, a vision of resolution of external, internal, and philosophical problems. And Churchill was the master at painting those pictures. Why was oh, it so? No question. Yeah. Why, give us some examples. Why, why was he so good at that? And did he intuitively just know how to do this stuff? I, I think it was a combination of a number of things. I think it was his nanny's influence on him, and you mm. have to know Churchill's story to know why that was so profound. Can you share a little bit about what the nanny's influence was? Did she read to him or what happened? Yes. Pa- pa- Churchill's parents were unbelievably distant from him. Even his son later, who wrote a biography of Churchill, said even by Victorian standards, they were unbelievably distant. Mm. So his nanny really became his mother and his father. She became the primary influence in his life. And she was a Methodist, which at that time was kind of despised in England. And uh, she just poured into his life a sense of his calling, a sense of his destiny, a sense of the the poetry of the common folk. She took him uh, into her lower class British uh, you know, strata. Uh, took him to pubs, took him to meet, you know, barmen and people who worked in the coal mines. And he got a sense of the beauty of life. And he began to think about what really motivates people. Uh, You know, people aren't motivated necessarily by the king and the lords and what parliament does. Uh, They're motivated by a promise that their children's world will be better. They're motivated by what he later called the broad sunlit uplands. They're motivated by being able to look back and say that was our finest hour, that we'll conduct ourselves in such a way as to, quote unquote, deserve victory. And so all of that uh, was the way that he thought. And when he led England in World War II, he made speeches. And he, he would say, if the British Empire lasts a thousand years, they will say, this is our finest hour. And, you know, you've said, Don, a couple of times in this interview, you've used a phrase, reverse engineer. That's really how we have to lead. You lead backwards. And what I mean by that is if you you and I are in a crisis, 
Um, I, I will inevitably say to you, buddy, one day we're going to be sitting somewhere raising a glass and toasting uh, being on the other side of this thing and having been victorious. Mm-hmm. So let's conduct ourselves in such a moment that we are that we are now in this crisis, that we are proud of ourselves and we remember that this was our finest hour. You see, that kind of thinking is powerful. It's interesting. I, I did that as soon as this hit. As soon as, soon as this hit, I, I just contacted my staff. I put a date on the calendar, said October 1st. We are going to have dinner at mine and Betsy's house. We're going to raise a glass of wine, and we're going to toast to the way we were performed through this crisis. And so we have to live in such a way to earn those words, whatever we're going to yes. toast each other. And it was just amazing It was amazing how, how sort of it set the compass immediately on how we would respond to this. And I actually offer that as – I think I went on Instagram and told all the leaders out there, set a date October 1st. Have a dinner with your team, the people that you're responsible for, the people that you help lead. And and decide that's the day that you're going to toast on your performance through this. Hopefully, we'll be through it by then. Um, but there is something about just crystallizing that victory. And he was able to do it, you know, painting verbal pictures of how you know we're going to fight on the beaches. We will fight them here. We will fight them there. We will fight them. And he's literally um, giving people a role to play in this drama, which is also very important. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And what you did with that dinner that you promised your team um, is very, very Churchillian. And almost every speech, he would sometimes say, it's hard, it's bad, the news is bad. But he would say, we're going to get past this and we're going to earn the new world for our children. Every single time he would refer somehow to a bright picture of the future. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be insulting here, but even the illiterate, uh, even the low IQ'd, even the, the simplest person in Britain would understand uh, that that's what they were fighting for, even if they didn't understand the technicalities of the war. And that's what made the difference. And in so doing, he did the fourth thing that you've talked about Churchill doing. He redefined hardship. He defined hardship as not the crisis, but you say it is the crisis making us better. Yeah. And again, so so massively important. Give us examples of how he did that. Well, absolutely. And, uh, and just like in our generation, in our generation, there's the temptation to believe that anything that is hard is bad. And uh, the same thing was going on at their time. So what Churchill did was he said, look, don't view hardship as an evil in and of itself. View hardship as the thing that's going to make us better. View hardship as the price of the world we're trying to win for our children and our grandchildren. So in other words, he he taught the people uh, to quote unquote draw from the heart of suffering the means of survival and victory. That's 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 a tra- paraphrase of something he actually said. So now again, every housewife, every barman, every coal miner is looking at his hardships, his sufferings, uh, you know, the empty shells in the stores, the bombings of his hometown, and he's thinking, this is what we have to go through to win the world that we want that that the prime minister is telling us about, and it transformed everything. And the reality is, I mean, in my Christian worldview, hardship is a gift. It is the only thing that transforms us. It's the only thing that we can face that will give us a sense of pride and confidence. Uh, and it's the thing that, in in many ways, names us. It's the hardship that we encounter. So, you know, this, this is a, a, an economic crisis that we're in, to some degree a health crisis that we're trying to avoid, uh, but at the same time, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to become the best version of ourselves. So hardship is, is good. Th- this is one of my favorites. You talk about him determining reality, misabound when people panic, but leaders find the truth. You know, leaders can often have a sort of uh, interesting relationship with the truth. Why is it so important to keep a strong relationship with the truth uh, and a mind for truth and an understanding of the truth as a leader? 
Because if you don't know the truth, you don't know the facts, you can't fashion policies and plans that are going to be that are going to lead to victory. Mm. And we have a tendency to live in myth. We have a tendency to live in distorted reality. Uh, and so, and frankly, the bigger personalities we are, the more power we have, the more there's a reality distortion field around us. And so people don't often tell us the truth. And one of the things that Churchill did and was very wise about doing was he insisted on the brutal facts, which in a combination of British politeness at the time uh, and just the myths that tend to abound in bureaucracies, uh, often uh, people were trying to shield him from the truth. He wanted the brutal facts. And, and it, there's actually a time, you know, he, he fought depression all his life. And there was actually mm -hmm. a time when he was prime minister, when he was battling depression because things were far, far worse than he had been told when he came into office. But he insisted on knowing the brutal realities. And even when he was running for office, he would run against a, an opponent. And he would say, this guy's living in a fantasy world. He mm -hmm. does not have the willingness to tell the electorate the truth. So this was a, a passion of his. It made all the difference. And, and that's why he would make speeches and say, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. But perhaps it is the end of the beginning. So, in other words, dark news and then suddenly a turn towards positive that was real. And people loved it because they felt like they had a GPS for the situation they were in. Well, it's, that's beautiful. And, it, and there's just no reason to close our eyes to truth. I'm truly inspired by that. And even as we look at our numbers, as we look at our payroll, as we look at our debt standing, as we look at to not turn away from that, you know, and to be able to look at it and say, okay, but how do we climb out of that? This is the hardship that we have to face. How we climb out of that is we have a strong bias toward action. Every great leader I've ever met, and I'm sure you're the same, uh, Stephen, has had a bias toward action. They move. They do things. And in stories, heroes have to do things. They have to take action or there is no story. Your, your sixth component of his leadership uh, abilities through a crisis were that he dared to act. And you even point that even symbolic action was essential. Tell us why symbolic action as a leader is so essential to motivate our people. Well, people want to know what to do, but they often don't until somebody embodies it, until somebody lives it out. Yeah. Uh, and so Churchill you know, certainly had to awaken a sleepy bureaucracy to win the war, uh, but he also wanted to show the British people what, what it would mean uh, to sacrifice. You know, one of, the, one of the famous things he did that really galvanized people was when the Nazi planes would come and bomb London, Churchill would not go to the shelters. He would go to the roof with his revolver and fire at them. <laughs> now, he wasn't stupid enough to think he was going to bring down the plane. Oh, it was symbolic um, action. It was symbolic action. Uh, he would always show up at, at, a, at a place of devastation where the bombings had happened, smoking a cigar, cussing at the Germans, uh, telling everybody we're going to get them. I mean, they literally would applaud him on the other end, uh, you, you know, as, as he was walking through the crowds, uh, because they, they, they would be so moved by his anger towards the Nazis. He had to show there was no fear. Exactly. Okay. He used humor. We, we, his humor is legendary. Um, and I, I find it interesting that, you know, of the nine things that you notice about leading through, uh, leading with courage through crisis, humor would come up. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have predicted that you'd have said that, but now all of a sudden it seems like levity is actually pretty important. What part does humor play in leading through a crisis? Well, before anybody was using the word meme 
Churchill understood that <laughs> stories got circulated at pubs, stories got circulated in, in uh, Parliament, stories got circulated amongst the people. Hmm. So he would so he would actually use moments. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. One's a little bit raw, but I, I, I imagine you won't you won't mind. Uh, our, our, uh, the, yeah, we've got some salty listeners out there. I guarantee. <laughs> the first one is early. I'll, I'll make it brief. Early World War II. Uh, he's visiting the White House. A lot of people are questioning whether he's telling the Amer- United States the truth about what he really needs in terms of material and 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 then shipments of goods from the u.s so people are doubting him one day he, he was famous for taking midday baths and one day <laughs> roosevelt was wheeled into his room midday and churchill was just emerging from the bath picture him now uh just a towel wrapped around him pink bulbous dripping from the bath and of course roosevelt being an aristocratic new englander was oh my gosh roll me out roll me out get me out of here he was flustered churchill raised his hand stopped roosevelt from leaving the room pulled the towel away, so now he's completely <laughs> naked, and said, sir, I have nothing to hide from the President of the United States. <laughs> so there he is, completely butt naked, but he's making a point. And don't you know that story got circulated? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it probably earned the trust of every American, you know? Exactly. Another quick one, real quick. This is the more, one that's more raw. It's after World War II. He is battling people who want to nationalize every industry he gets mad leaves a session of parliament goes down to the men's room it's one of the old ones with a trough down the middle he's urinating at one end suddenly the man who's leading the nationalizing effort comes in the same restroom and churchill angrily cigar in his mouth doing his business walks to the other end of the trough because he doesn't want to be near this guy the guy the guy that's the opposition says feeling standoffish today winston and he growls, no, but whenever you see anything big, you want to nationalize it. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? You think that's true? I think it's 100% true. That is seriously fast wit. That's pretty well, good. <laughs> consider, that, consider that there are other people in the restroom. He knows what's going on. He knows he that story is going to get out. Yeah, exactly. And so it changes the culture. That's brilliant. Okay, number eight, embody the change. The leader lives the change he urges in others. How do we embody the change? Churchill Churchill said the British people were the lion, but I had the privilege to give the roar. Mm. In other words, you become the symbol of what you want people to, to do. Gosh, that's so good. He even made the people the hero. He did. Yes. He was yes, the guy always, in that narrative. Always. Always yeah. it was the British people. Always it was their grand heritage. Always it was this emerald isle, as, as Shakespeare had said. He talked in those terms all the time. But he recognized that he was the roar. I was the voice. I was the one who inspired them to their best. And so, again, going to the roof and firing at Nazi planes, um, people would hear, people would, there would be pictures in the paper of him making a sandwich, using only what was available, you know, given limited supplies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he embodied what he wanted the British people to be, bold, courageous, sacrificing, fearless. And that's what changed the culture because people more is caught than is taught. He could talk all day, but it's what he actually was and showed the people he was that made the difference. Well, speaking of talking, one of your points is remember the poetry. And I just found it very, I found it fascinating that you would include this. Leaders call people to their best by describing life at its best. And, and why did you associate that with the poetry? Of course, he was a very poetic orator. Uh, and and I'm, I'm curious as, as, as to how he got that way, where he learned that. But uh, why did you call it poetry? Why did you call his oration poetry? It's the best word I can think of for this, Don. You've just said 
that you are already talking to your team and your family about future meals and get-togethers. Suppose I'm Churchill and I'm saying to you, Don Miller, Don, one day you will hold uh, children in your arms and you will tell them about the story of how you went through coronavirus. Right. right. One day will, you will tell them. One day uh, you'll be rocking in your back in your back porch. One day you'll be walking with your grandchild through the woods. One day, one day, uh, always the future, always the beauty. Now, if I quote a bit of poetry that we all love, now if I remember the noble words of a Churchill or one of our presidents, uh, then I reach for uh, the common experience of of kissing a, a wife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see, that's the poetry. That's what people live and die for. Statesmen sometimes think that people are motivated by statistics or they're motivated by descriptions of the dramatic, uh, meaning meaning how bad things are. They're not. They're motivated by, you've got to bring the situation into their lives. Churchill would talk about what we will be talking about in five years in our pubs, what we will say to our grandchildren, uh, how we will live in broad sunlit uplands. That's that, that's that's a phrase. That's a technical phrase that he used in a speech. Broad. Think about that. Broad oh, no. <laughs> sunlit uplands. He could have been a novelist. Yes, that that's a that's a, a way of saying a meadow. But he didn't choose the word meadow. He said broad sunlit uplands, and people went to war armed with those words. I interviewed a tank commander who was very, very old when I wrote the book on Churchill. And he said that I was in North Africa, we were getting beaten, we were starving, uh, many of my friends were dying, and then Churchill came on the radio, and it changed everything. And we said to each other, we're going to win. And that's the power of talking poetry in the midst of a crisis. Stephen, I, I couldn't think of a better interview for today. Uh, thank you so much. He framed the crisis. He invoked destiny. He defined victory. He redefined hardship. He determined reality. He dared to act. He used humor. He embodied the change. And he remembered the poetry. Fantastic. Uh, you know, The book is called The Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, Hero in a Time of Crisis. You can grab it on Amazon today. Stephen Mansfield, I wish you could come on every other week. We should just do a new, we should start a new podcast, just you and me together. Let's do it. I'll be, it'll be like one of those morning <laughs> radio shows. I'll have a horn and I'll honk it uh, while you're talking to people. It'll be great. I'll do traffic. Absolutely. I would come on and do traffic on your podcast. Oh, no, no. Let me do the traffic and you do the teaching. And it's great to be with you. Thank Good you to be so with much. you, Stephen. Tell your wife hello. I sure will, buddy. Love you. Deja, you see why I like Stephen Mansfield so much? Yeah, and I love Churchill. I've always yeah. loved Churchill. I mean, <laughs> he's just so many quotable. I mean, when you said I was close to Patton, I knew it could be Churchill because you can guess Churchill on a lot of things because he's just so <laughs> so smart. And hilarious. So, yes. we, yeah, we have to remember humor during this time, apparently. Yeah. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>